everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Dean Winston Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We have with us my co-host, Hall of Famer, Steve Flink. To Steve, to all tennis fans, we knew this day would come. Um, I've made some predictions in the past. Some have been wrong. Some have been right. Uh, I say this, unfortunately, I guess I was right on this one because going back February, February 21st to be exact, as soon as I heard Rafa was joining Roger at Labor Cup, I said to you, Steve, and then I put it on record on the pod, there's a very good chance uh, that this would be Roger's last professional match. Um, We just hadn't heard much from Roger. And then as Andy Murray and Novak Djokovic joined much later on in the summer, to me, that kind of sealed the deal. Again, we, we hadn't heard much from Roger. Then most recently, there was a rumor about some water in the knee. Um, I felt this would be the perfect way to go out. We're going to hit on some stats, some matches, both won and both lost. But before we do that, Steve, um, your initial reaction when you heard the news? Well, I wasn't shocked. I was mildly surprised. I, I, I had thought, you know, he might be able to sort of muddle along, get through Labor Cup, try to see what he, if he could win a match in Basel or a match or two and, and take it on into next year. But that was based on the knee holding up reasonably well. And obviously it didn't. When those reports started circulating about the water on the knee, I knew that that meant trouble. And then when I heard his announcement, heard what he said, I thought, you know what, he's he still has the same clarity of mind he always did because it was such a wise decision to say enough is enough. I'm 41. My body is not going to cooperate any longer. So why put yourself through any more of that turmoil? And I I think just a very smart decision on his part and good time to leave the game. And to our listeners, Steve and I are going to hit on a lot here. Um, We're not exactly sure how long this episode will go, but that being said, we're not going to be able to hit on everything. I mean, Roger's career spanned so, so long, and he accomplished so many great things. Um, we're going to try to hit on all the major points, both um, wins and losses and, again, stats. But if if you feel like we didn't hit on something specific or didn't hit on something enough, feel free when we release this episode. We'll be either Sunday night or Monday night. Um, in the comments, you know, let, let us know if there's something that you want Steve and I to discuss a little bit more. Um, Because, again, you just can't hit on everything. So with that, Steve, I'm just going to throw out a few stats um, and and I'll just ask your reaction on it. So, again, 103 ATP singles titles. If he wasn't if he wasn't injured, he'd probably catch Jimmy at 109. Number one uh, for 310 weeks, uh, including a um, finished year end. What? Five times. He had 20 slams. Everyone knows eight Wimbledon titles five U.S. Open titles. Um, there's some incredible streaks that I want to hit on, too. But before we do that, those few stats, what, what jumps out at you? Well, the weight of his record, obviously, he only won the one French Open. No disgrace. <laughs> it's a career grand slam. Uh, but the weight of his record was in the other three. But most notably, he had streaks of five titles in a row at both Wimbledon from 03 through 07, they came very close to making it six in a row before losing the epic to Rafa in 08. And then U.S. Open 2004 through 2008. And he came very close to making that six in a row before losing to Del Potro in 09. Those certainly stand out to me when I look at his uh, uh, his career 
in, in the, the, the larger trajectory of his career. And I think those were the most impressive parts of his slam of, of winning the 20 was those big streaks that he ran off at, in both New York and London. Now, I'm going to go with four additional stats that to me, I don't know which one is greater than the other because I think they're all remarkable. Between 2003 and 2009, Roger made 21 of 28 major singles finals. From 2004 to 2010, Roger made 23 consecutive semis in majors. He also made 36 consecutive quarterfinals in a row in majors, and he played over 1,500 matches and never retired during a match. I don't know which one is better than the others. Um, well, the never, the never retiring part is, is, a, is a tribute to how well he took care of himself, plus some good luck, because who's to say somewhere along the line he didn't just sprain an ankle in the middle of a match. All credit to him. He took great care of himself. So I, 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 But the streaks, David, the streaks, that's something. I mean, Novak had some nice long streaks of consistency at the majors, and Rafa had his incredible French Open 14 titles and maybe adding. But neither one of them can match those streaks. And it, it did show you that he was always in the thick of things in that, you know, really up until 2010, that to get to 36 quarters around means that he's in the last eight of 36. That's just unfathomable. It's just it, it's unimaginable. And so I think that that should not be overlooked, uh, that he that he always was contending and that he wouldn't lose in the first week. And, and there were plenty of guys who had chances to pick him off. He didn't let it happen. And I suspect he's very proud of those stats because it just showed you that the enduring consistency and the and the reliability of his game on all surfaces. Yeah. And, and again, I, I want to hit on some matches here and we're going to hit on both ones. He, he, he won that were memorable and some that he lost. Um, when you play at this elite level, some of those matches that he lost were absolutely brutal losses, but um, we're going to get to that. I want to start with, with some of the ones he won. And, and I think you have to start the 2001 uh, Wimbledon in the fourth round when he beat Pete Sampras, because that was the initial start of the changing of the guard. Remember Novak and Rafa were not in the picture yet. <laughs> Yes, listen, Pete had won the tournament seven of the previous eight years. He was going for five in a row. He had won 31 matches in a row at Wimbledon. Granted, he wasn't playing his best leading up to this Roger match, but he actually played first-rate tennis. It was a fascinating glimpse of what might have been in a rivalry between two icons because Pete was past his prime despite winning the U.S. Open the next year, and Roger was not yet at his prime. and went to 7-5 in the fifth for Roger, and I've looked at it on tape many times since. I was there live when it happened, there to see it in the center court. And it was obviously an announcement. It was an arrival. It was Roger telling the world he was going to be a great player. And it was Pete battling hard and maybe a little unlucky not to win it in the end because he had break points at four on the fifth. But Roger's nerve held up. Even though he lost to Henman in the quarters right after that, we knew then. Uh, there was no question that he was going to be winning major championships and that he was going to be one of the great performers in the world of tennis. I want to jump several years now to 2009, because that was a critical year, I think, in, in Roger's career. Two majors in a row, obviously one being the 2009 French Open, where he beat uh, Robin Soderling. 
pretty straightforward. There was a match earlier that Steve's going to talk about. that was really crucial that um, tied him with Pete with the slam record. And then the next uh, final was beating Andy Roddick in 2009. That's 16, 14, which broke Pete's record of 14. Um, let's, let's start with the French open. This was the one where Roger had a fantastic French open record. He just happened to go up against the greatest clay quarter ever in a bunch of finals and couldn't beat Rafa. Um, Rafa loses early this uh, in, in 2009 in Roland Garros. Now all the pressure is heavily on Roger. This is his chance. And it was not smooth sailing for the title here. No, well, let's put it in perspective. Rafa had lost to Robin Soderling on the Sunday, on the middle Sunday of the tournament. So Roger now realized, having lost to Rafa in the semifinals in 05, and then the finals, three straight years, six, seven, and eight, that now here was his chance. And the next day, David, he plays Tommy Haas, and he's down two sets to love, and it's four on the third. He saves a break point with an inside-out forehand winner. Came all the way back to win it in five. He later beat Del Potro in a five-set semi and Robin Soderling in the final. So that was that opportunity nearly uh, nearly eluded him. But he came through in the clutch against Tommy. Came through once more under intense pressure against Delpo, and then won the title rather comfortably against Soderling. And so that and and uh, Soderling would beat him. Interestingly enough, the, the next year, the only time Roger ever lost to Soderling, but he beat him. On a, on a day where there was some rain and it was a little anticlimactic because the Haas match was the dramatic moment. But what you, you saw the great sense of relief and exhilaration when Roger took that title because he knew how hard it was ever going to be. He never beat Rafa on that court and he knew it was always going to be an almost impossible task. So he took his opportunity and did it really impressively. I mean, people think like, oh, no, Rogers, you know, Rafa is now out of the tournament. This is going to be easy for Roger. The immense pressure, because what you just said, this was his best and probably only chance of of winning French Open. I mean, Roger, again, had a great French Open record. He's just in the same era of playing against the greatest clay court ever. Um, that pressure showed, I think, in those matches that you talked about. Roger wasn't just facing his opponent the rest of the way in that tournament. He was facing like, OK, I have got to do this if I'm going to win a career grand slam. Oh yeah. And Roger came through. Absolutely. And as calm as he was, as composed as he always was in the, in the competitive arena, you knew he was feeling it. You could sense it in the Haas match when he got down, but he still managed to come back. And, and then Delpo was really sort of just arriving on the scene, but that was a tense match as well. And he dealt with it beautifully now as it turned out he lost one more final to Rafa in 2011 two years later so I mean Rafa always haunted him on that court and on clay across the board but that was a very important landmark triumph in the career of Roger Federer to take Roland Garros in 2009. Huge and then the very next slam was Wimbledon and here's where he broke the the record of most slams with Pete at the time 14 I, Pete was there I believe if I remember yes correctly. Pete was there Yes, he was. He flew over and, and Labor was there and Borg was there. They were all sitting together. And that, that, was, an, that was a really uh, a wonderful moment for the sport to have these great former champions, champions, particularly Sampras, present to watch Federer and the record breaker. And of course, it was a heartbreaking loss for Andy Roddick because he let, won the first set and had four set points, leading 6-2 in the tiebreak. And the second set missed an easy, easy back in volley at 6-5. 
anyway, long story, 16-14 in the fifth to Roger. And, and he later said, it was interesting, I'll never forget him saying the next day, I won that match on willpower. He knew that in many ways Andy had outplayed him. Andy didn't lose his serve until the last game of the match. Crazy. 77 games of the match, and he had not been broken. And finally, Roger did it. And, uh, yeah, he, he, he had been largely outplayed by Roddick, but it was a great, great display of steely resolve to pull out that match over Roddick. And uh, in, in, one of, in many ways, one of his finest hours. Andy had some good battles with Roger at Wimbledon. Andy recently tweeted, once we heard the announcement from Roger, Andy was funny. He's like, okay, now it's time for me to start training for Wimbledon because he knew um, yeah. you know, Andy, Andy could have won you know, if Roger wasn't in his way, right? Well, Andy if could Andy, have had a few Wimbledon titles. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But Andy also could have won if he would have been able to just secure one of those set points in the second set tie. If he'd gone up two sets to love, I think Roger would not have given up, but it would have been a long way back. That was the crucial set but to Roddick's credit for him to come back after going down two sets to one and push it into a fifth and then to take it so deep into a fifth that yeah. was 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 remarkable but it was a it was a a remarkable display of competitiveness from uh, from Federer and and I I think I, I think he was really proud of that one now the he Andy also lost that 04 final to yep. Roger after winning the first set, and he had chances there. They were set all 4-2 in the third, and there was a rain break, and then Roger came back and won in four. So they had some memorable battles on that court, did Roddick and Federer. They, they really did. I want to jump now eight years later, um, 2017 Australian Open final. Um, they, I think both Roger and Rafa, and they've spoke to this, did not expect to uh, – find themselves in the final of that tournament. It had been a little while. This was a time where Roger really recommitted himself, got the bigger, um, bigger racket, stepped up on that baseline, was not just going to settle and chip off that Rafa's ball. Again, it's easier said than done. But Rafa committed to really stepping in and taking that backhand on the rise with emphasis, five sets. Roger beats Rafa in that 2017 Australian Open final. But you're right. They both had had some real injury problems. Rafa had really not been the same player that we had seen from 05 through 14 in the 15 and 16 seasons. Roger had had a knee surgery after falling at Wimbledon in the in the semifinals in 16. So he was basically gone for six months. So this was a stunning comeback. Three five set matches that he won over Nishikori, Babrinka, and finally Rafa. But the amazing thing about the Rafa match was, that, of course, he lost to Rafa in the finals there in 09. And now here they are playing again eight years later, and Rafa's up 3-1 in the fifth. And I don't think anybody in that arena except Roger's most ardent boosters believed that he was going to come back. He swept five games in a row. Those were probably five of the great games he's ever played in a major final. He raised his game decidedly and caught Rafa off guard and won the match 6-3 in the fifth. So I think that was probably his most cherished triumph, given the fact that up until then, uh, Rafa had beaten him in six out of eight Grand Slam finals between the two of them. So that, that to come back and beat Rafa there from that dire predicament that he was in was astonishing. Now, um, before we get to some of the, the matches on the other side where Roger was so tantalizing, clo tantalizingly close to winning and, and losing, is there anything else? And again, Steve and I are not going to be able to cover on everything. So we'll, we'll let the, the viewers kind of decide if we want to do another one of these. But anything um, you want to say, Steve, before we get to some of those brutal, brutal losses? 
No, I mean, no, I, th- I, I, I think we can get to the losses. I'm, I, I would like to say that, I mean, we'll get to more of this later. He, was in, he had an astonishing decade, really. If you look at the decade, the first decade of the 21st century, that was his decade. Uh, I mean, he took over in it started with Wimbledon in 03 and the, the streaks we described at both Wim, I talked about at Wimbledon and the open and that that was his time because that's where he had the, the four years in a row at number one from 04 to 07 and then again in 09. So five, half of those years he was number one. Uh, that that those were his most dominant days. And it was it, it, there was something impenetrable about him at that time. So. Was, that, was it 05? Was it 2005 in Miami final when Rafa and, and Roger played that five setter? Was it 05? I could be wrong on that. It was five sacks, I think. Was it 2005 in, in Miami when Roger played? Oh, Rafa? oh, yes, 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 it was. And, and, and that was fascinating because Roger came from two sets down. It's one of the few times I've ever seen Rafa look tired. Toward the end, he, you know, Roger was fresher than he was. And I think it was more sort of a de- deflated because Rafa was up two sets to love, 4-1 in the third. And then he had 5-3 in the tiebreak. He was so close to winning in straight. And I think he was so disappointed not to put the match to way there that maybe it was more sort of mental weariness than physical. But he, it was a great comeback for Roger. And then they played soon thereafter at the French, obviously, in the semifinals. And uh, Rafa did win that one in four, but that was that was a, one of the most spectacular comebacks that Federer ever made, certainly against Nadal. And I think that 05 final in Miami, that was really the mark of, okay, these two great, great competitors, maybe two of the best ever, right? They're going to have a ton of battles going forward. And how lucky were we to witness um, that relationship, um, not only a, as fierce rivals on the court, but great, great friendship. And that's something that I think all of tennis fans just love about those two. And, and, and yeah, I think they, it shows. I, it's, oh, go ahead, Steve. I think it's just worth throwing in. They, they're very respectful rivals. Obviously, no two rivals. You can only get so close. But they, especially in their latter years, they developed an even deeper rapport. And I think that that was evident when uh, they talked about each other in, after that 17 Australian Open final. And you could see that they'd been through so much by then. They understood each other very well. They weren't going to be constantly sitting down to dinner together, but they really did come to have enormous mutual respect. Um, I, I think it's a great place to transition to one of those tough losses for Roger and to talk about the relationship, what we were just talking about with Roger and Rafa, that 2009 loss to Rafa in Australia. Um, you, everybody remembers that, um, trophy presentation and, and Roger went first as the runner up and he broke down, he couldn't get through it. And it, it, Rafa, you know, then gives his speech. And then when they, when he walks back to Roger, he puts his arm around him and he just kind of, you know, they, 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 they he said a few words to him and, and they kind of hugged and it was just, you know, this is special. This isn't, this isn't Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe. Um, this is something that you saw how much mutual respect they had for each other. I will never forget that moment, that trophy presentation in 2009, Australia. No, I won't either. I think we should explain. It was fascinating because they wanted, of course, Roger was the runner up and he started to speak. That's when he broke down and he said, it's killing me. And he just started to break down in tears. And then the organizers were wise enough to say to them, they thought, well, we'll bring Rafa up. 
But then that's when Rafa went over and put his arm around Roger and that enabled Roger to regain his composure and get back up and speak and congratulate Rafa and be gracious. And it worked out beautifully because, because of Rafa's gesture. I don't think if Rafa had not gone over there, I think then Rafa would have had to give his speech first. It would have been awkward. Roger coming back afterwards. What a moment for both of them. A hundred percent agree with you. A hundred percent agree with that. It was, it was a special, I'm getting chills thinking about it right now. It was such a special, special um, moment in, in sports as a whole. Here you are, two of the greatest players possibly ever, right? Battling it out fiercely. And you see this moment. These are humans. These are, these are not robots. These are humans. And I, I think that moment showed um, so much about their relationship. And obviously it did going forward. It just continued to be so special. And, and again, how lucky were we? Um, I have to throw in. Now, by the way, just a quick comment, Dave. That was what, what Roger would later say. He thought that was one of the highest quality matches they ever played against each other. Even though he lost it, he felt the standard was high, except what what happened was that the standard was extraordinarily high for four sets. And then suddenly at two all in the fifth, Roger just completely lost his way. I don't know if it was mental or physical. I think it was more mental. And, and Rafa ran away with the fifth set from there. But it was one of their their highest caliber contests. Yeah, a, a year prior, and I believe you ranked this as the greatest match of all time in, in your book was the, the 9-7 2008 Wimbledon final. Um, it was dark. They were not going to be able to play uh, many more points, let alone games. Um, if that kept continuing, Rafa edges fed 9-7. The year before, Roger had beaten Rafa, but it, Rafa was getting closer. This was not your typical... In, you know, in the 80s, when many people who won the French didn't even play Wimbledon because the surfaces were so different. Um, this was not the case at all. Rafa gave Roger a test in 2007. Roger won it. And here we are in 2008. And, and I'll let you speak to this one. Well, the first, interestingly, they actually also met in 06. And Rafa, yep. man, said he wasn't ready then. It was a clear right. cut in for Roger. Then the 07 match you mentioned went five sets. And Rafa had a bunch of break points, I believe, four of them in the fifth set early that could have made the difference. And Roger was good, was very good under pressure, served his way out of danger and eventually won that fifth set. And uh, so here they were in 08 and Roger had just come off a 6-1, 6-3, 6-love thrashing from Rafa in the Roland Garros final. Uh, but he but and, but now it's Rafa has to prove himself on the grass. He's never won Wimbledon. He's been dominating the French. And he'd won the French by that stage four times in a row. And so uh, Rafa won the first two sets of this epic Wimbledon final, four and four, before Roger comes back to and serve brilliantly in the third set tiebreak to win that and then save two match points in, in, in a, an absolutely crackling fourth set tiebreak to take it into a fifth. Meantime, there have been a couple of rain delays. But finally, on the edge of darkness, as you mentioned, after 9.15, uh, Rafa gets the break at seven all in the fifth. And, and I think everybody realized if he didn't serve the match out at eight, seven, they were coming back the next day. There was not going to be enough light left, but he managed to do it. It was a really a groundbreaking triumph for him. And one that I think he might say one day was the most meaningful of his career. I mean, he has great deep appreciation of everything he's done at Roland Garros, but he always believed because Rafa's a big picture thinker that Wimbledon is the biggest tournament of them all. So for him, to beat Federer on those lawns and break Roger's streak, prevent him from winning six titles in a row and get his first immensely gratifying. Remember too, this was a time when both families were sitting in the same player's box. Imagine the emotions going through. You got Federer's 
you know, Federer's group in, in one corner and you got Rafa's group in the other corner. That that is now switched from now, but the the emotional ebbs and flows, the roller coaster of that match, and you got the two families sitting together. Unbelievable. Yeah, that's just the setup at Wimbledon. That's how it was. And and they all they all knew how to handle it. And I mean you could still see it if, if even many years later when Djokovic and, and Federer met in their epic final, and we'll talk about that, the, the two, uh, the two honorages are not that far apart there. It's like first row and second row. And that's just, how it's but, 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 but everybody always manages to behave very well because they understand what's going on on the other side of the net and what's going on in the emotions of those sitting one row away from them. Amazing. Uh, yeah. And of course you read more about this match in Steve's book, greatest matches of all time. Steve ranks at number one. Um, go check it out. Got to talk about Novak into the equation, Steve. And I don't know if you've had anybody, at least if you group it in a semi and a final who have had uh, three times, three separate times, 2010, 2011 U S opens and 2019 Wimbledon three times double match point. Roger had double match point against Novak. Roger did not win any of those matches. Steve, uh, again, I'll let you I'll let you talk about all three. Well, 2010 turning point for Djokovic, who had been kind of grown accustomed to being the third wheel behind Nadal and Federer, or Federer and Nadal, depending on the year. So here he was playing Roger in the semis. It was a major step forward for Djokovic in his move toward number one the following year. And he, uh, they go to a fifth set. It was a topsy-turvy kind of match. And they go to the fifth and Novak serving at 4-5, 15-40. It's a forehand swing volley winner. Roger was trying like crazy to defend, did the best he could. Djokovic took a chance because he wasn't that close to the net, put away the swing volley, then hit a forehand ground stroke winner and came back all the way to win it 7-5 in the fifth. So that was the first time. Then the next year was even more jarring. The for first Roger. time Novak was serving, right? The first yes. time Novak was serving. Yeah, Novak was serving at 4, 5, 15, 40. And right. so that, that has to be thrown into the equations, uh, obviously. And he, he, he held up well under pressure. And Roger gave, him a, gave himself a chance to win those points, but he was on the defense pretty much the entirety of both points. So then we go to 2011. Circumstances have entirely changed, David, because now Novak is dominating the game. He won his first 41 matches of the year before Roger actually beat him in the Roland Garros semis. A big win for Roger in the semis before losing to Nadal in the Roland Garros final. Then Novak keeps charging through again. He wins, comes back and wins Wimbledon, comes in as the heavy U.S. Open favorite, plays Roger in the semis, and Roger got up two sets to love. And Roger had also been up, by the way, two sets to love against Sanga at Wimbledon before losing there. So here he is up two sets on Novak. Novak comes back, dominates the third and fourth. But Roger serving 5-3, 40-15, double match point in the fifth. And then it was the shot heard round the world when he served wide to the Djokovic forehand, which had been a very successful tactic the whole match. But Djokovic read this one, and the serve didn't break quite wide enough. And, jo and Novak just teed off went for broke, blasted it cross court like a rocket, and it landed pretty much on the sideline for a winner. And then, then he fended off a body serve on the next match point, and Roger missed a forehand off the net court. And once again, Novak all comes all the way back, this time from 5-3 down in the fifth to win 7-5 in the fifth. That one, I think, was more jarring for Roger because it was a chance to avenge what happened the year before. It would have been a big win. And, and, and very impressive because it would have, would have been his second win at a major that year over, the, over Djokovic, who was now the game's dominant player. 
but Djokovic took it away in five. Now, do we want to go to the third instance? Let's go to the third instance. And oh, is Roger a, 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 a millimeter away from closing this one out? Well, here was another example, David. It was it was sort of a late career last hurrah opportunity because Roger, who was well on his way to his 38th birthday, uh, still 37 when he, he beats Rafa in the semifinals, avenging a loss. This is 2019, avenging a loss to Rafa on a very windy day at Roland Garros in the semis. And many were surprised because Rafa had been playing really well right. in the semis. But Roger played an excellent match against a slightly off-form Nadal, and he wins in four, and now he's playing Novak. And again, everybody thinks, well, Novak is going to, he's going to be too much for him because during this decade, as opposed to the prior one, that Novak had been really held the upper hand in the rivalry with Roger. So uh, this one came down to, to the uh, fifth set tiebreak. But before we got to the fifth set tiebreak, of course, Roger served at eight, seven, 40, 15 double match point. Again, the two match points on his serve just missed going on the first serve up the tee that probably would have had Novak on the, on the first match. That, point. Yeah. I want to emphasize that because if anyone wants to go back on YouTube and watch yeah. that Novak was leaning the other way. I mean, that is an ace and that's that. And Roger wins the match and he hit but, the top of the tape. Top yeah. He hit the top of the tape and he had just preceded preceding two points. He had served aces. This one, he just misses. Then the Djokovic makes a nice solid second server turn down the middle and Roger misses the inside out forehand. And then, Roger on the second match point came in, he got a fairly short return and he kind of measured his approach a bit, but it wasn't a bad approach. And Novak passed him cleanly cross court off the forehand. And then he comes back. And, uh, but again, to Roger's credit and not, this is never talked about enough. That was so devastating because he lost the next two points. So uh, missing forehands and Djokovic was peppering away at Roger's forehand. And that meant it was eight all eventually it went to 12 all the first ever 12 all final set tie but Wimbledon had finally agreed to the final set tie break, but not until 12 all and, and Djokovic wins seven points to three, but it's not as if Roger collapsed no. after losing his serve at eight all. In fact, he even had break points with Djokovic serving at 11 all in that set and Novak managed to, to fend those off, hold on and eventually win it 13, 12 in the fifth, seven, three in the tie break. That may have been the most devastatingly potent loss is how I would put it. Uh, the, for Roger, it may be of his career because to, he would have then for the first time ever beaten Nadal and Djokovic in the same major, back to back. At 38 years old, right? Yeah, it would have been uh, even more than icing on the cake. It would have been so satisfying for him and so improbable really at that stage of his career. Not that he wasn't so great on grass, but and, and he would say afterwards, this was a massive missed opportunity. But I want you. I want you to say this, David. That we should say we should. It's certainly my point of view, and I. And I don't. I'd like to know if you share it. But if you look at those three matches, the two at the U.S. Open in ten and eleven, the Wimbledon final in nineteen, the emphasis is put often on the fact that Roger, that that the opportunity to win eluded him. That that he. More emphasis put on as if he lost those matches when in fact. It took tremendous uh, presence of mind, and courage, and composure to, to, for Djokovic to win all three as well. I think people forget that. That yes, it's and it's not as if Roger. If you look at any of the six match points, he did not give any of them away. It wasn't as if he suddenly threw in a double fall on a match right. point. So, so I think Djokovic. This to me is reminiscent of McEnroe and 
Lendl in the 84 French final, when Lendl finally won his first major and all everybody wanted to talk about was how could McEnroe lose in two sets to love? And John himself was, was devastated by it. But I think he, 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 just like Lendl deserved credit for climbing back from two sets to love down to win his French Open, first French Open over John McEnroe, Djokovic must, nobody else has done that to Roger. Roger has lost other matches to players who've had match points against him, including Rafa at the Italian Open. But it still took, it, 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 I still would like to see Djokovic being acknowledged a little more than he has been for those triumphs. And, and Roger, did I would, not- I would agree with you with the one minor caveat. And I think Novak even said it in 2011 U S open the forehand that we had emphasized Novak, I believe said, I almost just kind of closed my eye. Cause if you saw before the point, he like smiled and Novak kind of thought this match was over. And he said after the post, after that match, he said he kind of closed his eyes and swung as hard as he could. Well, Roger maybe even acknowledged he got a little bit lucky. That's the only caveat I would say in, in, in your statement. But yeah, yeah agree. but I would I would I think that was somewhat modest, too. He said it. It's, he said the same thing in 2010 about the swing volley that he made on the first match going down. I closed my eyes. Not really. I mean, these are shot. All I'm saying is these are shots that great players make. They know yes. how to do it. It's true that as as Novak lined up and, and crouched over to play his return to serve a double match point down, does he think he's going to win at that stage? No. But I also think we're talking about the greatest returner in the history of the sport. So it's not it's not uh, unfathomable for him to make that return. You know, yes, it's a gamble because he hit it so hard. But we've seen him make a lot of spectacular returns in his time. To me, he was being a bit modest in, in those cases. And then Roger was frustrated after yeah. the 2011 loss yeah. because he started comparing it to juniors slapping balls around. I don't think he really meant that. I think he knew this was Djokovic, the, 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 the most extraordinary returner we've ever seen a guy who can get a lot of returns back and then sometimes just blast winning returns. And then he still had to fend off one more after that. He still had to walk over to the ad court. And that's when he raised his palms to the crowd as if to say, give me a little support. And they did. And listen, it was, it was it was a shocking moment. And Federer did say of that 2011 one that when Novak made that return, that it just changed the complexion of the match entirely. Uh, he could feel it. So that's that's my take on it, that Djokovic was being a bit modest. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, when when Roger throughout his course, course of his career is playing in these late stages of, of majors, he's not going to win every one of them. And, um, you know, some of the matches that we just talked about were brutal were brutal losses for Roger, but I was always impressed with Roger and how quickly he would bounce back after an agonizing defeat. He didn't let it sit with him long where it it would never affect him in the next tournament that he would play. And he would argue that, you know, in a day or two or three, he's ready to go and get back. Yeah. I think think that he had that, that equanimity about winning and losing and understood. And also his, he would often point out to, uh, commentators and writers, he believed that he also won a lot of matches that he could have lost. So he was, he kept that in perspective and realized it's part of the game. Sometimes you're going to somehow pull out a match that you didn't think you could possibly uh, achieve. And then, then other times you're going to be on the edge of victory. And we've talked get, about that paper. several times that that's the sport of tennis, right? I mean, it's, that's, it's tennis, and that's the beauty of the scoring system in tennis is that, that there's no clock and you, you, you have to win that final point. And Federer probably understood that better than anybody and accepted the fact that 
along with his monumental triumphs, we're going to become, we're alongside them, we're going to be harrowing defeats. And one more we should just briefly mention was the Delpo loss at the 2009 Open because he served for a two sets to love lead and he had 30 love and he didn't close it, lost that set, eventually lost it in five. And he was a couple of points away from winning that match in the four set. So the Federer fans always lament that Delpo loss as well because that would have been six U.S. Opens in a row. I mean, look at the players through the span of his career that, that he had to compete against, right? He, he played he played Pete and Andre. He then obviously had Rafa and, and uh, Novak. Now he's doing yeah. the new generation now. I mean, the span of the career and the, play, the players that um, he had to face and, and for the most part beats um, was tremendous. I think if there was one thing that not only tennis fans, but sports fans in, in general – um, didn't get to see, and it was close a, a, a few times, was Rafa playing Roger in New York. I mean, imagine yeah. the yes. atmosphere, especially if it would be a night match. You know, it, it would be a semi or a, or a final most likely, right? So you may start later in the day, but um, it was one point away a couple times, and we talked about both those times in 2010 and 2011, if if Roger beats Novak in those semis, he plays Rafa. I mean, you can't yeah, get and much he knew closer. That. Yeah, he knew that, David. He was well aware. And I think he would have, you know, it, I honestly believe, although the odds would actually have been against Roger in 2000. In 2010, Rafa had won the French in Wimbledon leading up to the Open, and he was it was one of his best years. So uh, I think that he would have been the clear favorite in 2010, and then he would have still been the favorite in 2011, even though it had been Novak's year. Uh, Roger was probably aware of that, but I, I, I think they both will regret that they never got the chance. Then there was one more, David, and that was 2013. It wouldn't have been quite as regal an occasion, if I can put it that way, because they would have met in the quarters. Roger had had a bad year in 13. His back had been bothering him. It was just, it was one of his worst years. So they were in the same quarter of the draw. And, uh, and it looks It still could have been, I mean, you remember late in the career with Andre and Pete played that 2001 quarterfinal. So I think it still could have had the potential. We'll never know, right? Could have had the potential, especially putting that at night. It was a shame tennis fans never and never, never got to witness a match like yeah, that. Yeah, no, it might it might have turned into a, a remarkable match. We'll never know. Although Roger that year just wasn't really himself, and he lost. And it was interesting because Rafa was playing against Cole Schreiber in Ash Stadium, and Ro- Roger had been moved over to Armstrong to play against Tommy Robredo, and he you know, had a ten and zero record against him until that point, and he loses to Robredo shockingly, and so we didn't get the. We didn't get the match that year either. It's too bad when you think of all their monumental clashes at the three and two unbelievable matches in the Australian Open finals, the epic Wimbledon final, three finals there all together, four finals in Paris, and then a, another semifinal the first time they were met there. And not, not once in New York. What were the looking Remarkable, back at- Steve. Remarkable, Steve. Just the, the, how many times they were top one and two seeds opposite sides of the draw, how many times they played at every other tournament it's remarkable not once we got it in new york yeah no retrospectively it's it's really it's it's a, it's a shame and 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 it it was improbable it, it it almost had to happen given the success they both were enjoying across all those years but it just did not and they would have had it would have been a very interesting especially in 10 or 11 even though i would give rafa the edge for sure in 10 and again in 11 
those courts in New York had played were playing pretty fast and hard courts. And so it's not as if Roger wouldn't have had a chance. They could have had some some outstanding uh, matches either of those years and the fans would have loved it. But Novak Djokovic had other ideas in 10 and 11. And then the Robredo loss in 13 was just a, a shocker. And it was it was evidence that Roger was just struggling too much with his body at that time, with his back particularly. Yeah, when you when you look at this, and I know we have the recency bias right now, so we it, it may be better to take a step back and talk about this later. But um, with Roger leaving again, he was the first of the big three, you know. And no, shortly thereafter, Rafa and then Novak followed, and they took the game to to, to new heights that that no one we we may we may never see this again. We don't know, right? But um, the effect that he had not only in the tennis world but in the global sports arena and what he's done off the court his impact uh has been remarkable and he's still going to stay involved in the sport in some way shape or form it's not going to be one of these retired athletes that he just kind of goes away quietly and you don't even hear about him again I don't think I think he genuinely loves the sport of tennis he's said that so many times he loves tennis period and because of that I think he's going to stay involved in the sport and let's hope he does yeah, I think probably the, the sheer joy of hitting the tennis ball and doing it as creatively as he did it, he, he may have loved it more than, than Nadal or Djokovic, Sampras, Labor, any of them. It, it's arguable, but I, I, I think the case could be made. And yes, you're right. And he made it clear in his statement, David, that he's, he said, I'm no longer going to be playing on the tour or in the Grand Slams. But He'll play. There'll be exhibitions. There'll be senior tennis. Inevitably, he he will be out there performing, and I'm sure he'll. The crowds will still flock to him the way they always did. The the affection the crowds had for him worldwide was unlike anything I've seen in in 50 years of reporting on tennis. It, because it was it was universal. It didn't matter where he played. It didn't matter what stage of his career. He always enjoyed fervent crowd support they just they loved the way he played the game they loved the elegance of his game and they loved the way he comported himself on top of all that yeah and I, I want the listeners to know Steve wrote a fantastic article for the USTA it's on usopen.org um, Steve goes goes into a deeper dive of, of Roger I highly recommend you um, checking that article out and, and, I, and I'll also Steve go back to so what my thoughts were in February when Rafa announced he'd be joining Roger for Labor Cup, um, what a way to go out with with Rafa and then obviously Andy and Novak joining in. Um, this this is right. This feels right, Steve. It just does. Of course, and he's the one that of course established the event with his manager Tony Godset. They were the ones who created it. They're the ones who went to Rod Labor to get him to put his name on it, out of deference to the history of the game and Labor's obvious place among the all-time greats and some would say the greatest of all time so uh yeah it's fitting and it's fitting that they're all going to be there and they didn't know initially when they committed that this was going to be farewell for roger but now they do and i'm sure to be very emotional i'm sure there'll be a lot of tears shed and the fans will enjoy it immensely as well and it is fitting i agree and Unfortunately, you know it yes it's it's considered in the record books now for the atp they they use the stats but it's it's still it's not going to be a high pressure event. It's going to be one. It's just going to be a celebration of all these great players, but particularly Roger Federer. 
I'll end it with this. How lucky were we and how lucky were, were, were all of us as tennis fans and sporting fans to have uh, someone like Roger uh, come into, come into the, the sport of tennis. It, it was a remarkable career and how he held himself both uh, together on the court and off the court is something that um, youngsters should look at as how they carry themselves in, in any industry. I'm not talking just on the tennis court. Um, we were lucky to have Roger Federer. And it's, we should just say also briefly, David, that it's, it's, it's fascinating to consider his place in history because here's a man that went, and you alluded to it, there was Pete Sampras and Rod Laver and Bjorn Borg in the stands watching him break Pete's record and get his 15th major. And a lot of people at that time felt, particularly since he had just come off winning the French, and so he now had all the majors in his collection, that he, would, he was the greatest of all time. Then, obviously, Djokovic and, and Nadal achieved on, on a prodigious scale after that. And so Roger ends up with a 16-24 and 24 record against Rafa career-wise and 3-6 and six in the major finals, and he ends up down against Novak, 23 wins, 27 losses, and he... He had at one time led Novak 13-6, and then Novak won 21 of the last 31. So what does this all mean? Well, it just to me, it means that his two major rivals ultimately got the best of him. When he was at his peak in his 20s, obviously he was he was the preeminent player, and they had not they had not come close to him. And Rafa was still at that stage trying to improve his all-surface. That's uh, and I want I think that's important to state, Steve, because Roger was getting to late stages and winning slams. He just wasn't facing Rafa Nadal because right. Rafa wasn't there yet versus on a clay court. Roger was getting to the last round of slams. He just happened to face the greatest clay quarter of all time. So that that head to head early on is skewed towards Rafa because Rafa well, wasn't a little bit. Roger Rafa, wasn't given the opportunity to, to face Rafa on Roger's favorite surfaces. At the time. Well, he, it's true, although by six, seven and eight, obviously it was starting with the 2006 final. Then they did start to meet every year. And that was a, a staggering period for the sport because they met three straight years in the French Open final, six, seven and eight. And then they did the same at Wimbledon. We've never seen anything remotely like that in the history of the right. sport. But just my my point being that then ultimately, he was overtaken in terms of titles. He ends up with 20 majors, 21 for Novak, 22 for Rafa. I don't think you can base your choice uh, for greatest ever or greatest of this year strictly on that. But I think his head-to-heads against them are a problem. And I, I think it, it's, it's just a fascinating discussion because some people would say, how can you be the greatest of all time if you're not the greatest of your era? Others would say, but he was the greatest of his era up until a certain point, up right. until 30. So you weigh that up against the fact that Djokovic and Djokovic certainly had not peaked yet. And he peaked in the period when he won 21 of the last 31 against Roger. So there's so much to weigh. And the other thing where Roger did himself justice was he came back at Rafa and won six of the last seven times they played. Yes. And that I'm, I'm sure he'll be very, uh, very gratified about that because Rod, uh, Rafa was such a thorn in his side for so long. And then to have all those wins against him toward the end, which included an Australian Open final of 17 and a Wimbledon, uh, Wimbledon semi of, of 19 after the Australian Open final in 17. Those were big wins for Federer uh, at a time when Djokovic was getting the best of him. But no doubt they are, they are three of the best ever. And, and I think we, we might want to throw Sampras and Labor into the conversation with them. And, and then we could sit around and probably do a podcast that would last five hours. 
Yeah, I mean, the big three to me, and we've I've had this discussion with other people. It's amazing what all three of them have done. You can, depending on what which player you want to make your case as, you can skew stats in favor of that player and against the other two. And you could do that. It's a, it's a fascinating discussion. It really is. How lucky were we? I, I've said that a few times. How lucky were we to have this? Um, Roger, we're going to miss you, but but you have you have been an idol for so many and you have represented the, the, the game uh, so, so well, so, so well. And and you know, now, David, he, he transcended. The, it's, I think it's fair to say he transcended the sport. And this is no knock on Novak or Rafa, but more than them, he became such an iconic figure that sports fans were drawn to him and even casual observers of sports were drawn to him. And I remember meeting a young man once at, up at Yale University, a young student, and, we, and, he, and he, 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 I told him I reported on tennis. And he said, oh, my God. He said, have you seen Federer play in person? I said, many, many times. He said, I'm told it's a religious experience. And that's how I think a lot of fans actually looked at it. They saw him as an artist. They saw him as a sportsman. They saw him as someone who was larger than the game he played. And I think that was even more true of him than Djokovic or Nadal. And that's really saying something. Uh, I would agree. And we, we, we can leave it at that. Steve, this was, this was fun. We could have talked about this for hours. Um, and we'll see, depending on feedback we get, if we want to dive uh, into anything deeper. But this was, this, this was fun. I know there's a few episodes that we've done that have really kind of hit close to our hearts. I know one of them was the, the Andre and Pete discussion we had. And I think um, when we take a step back and, and as time goes by, I think we're going to look at this episode as well and, and be like, this was, this was a fun one and, and, and how lucky were we to be able to talk about it. So with that, thank you, Steve. And this, David, this just a, a last comment. I think some people look at this as a sad moment. I don't because I think he's doing himself justice by leaving. I would not have wanted him to hang around and lose to lesser players 100%. in kind of a semi crippled condition. I like the fact that he made a, that he was able to last as long as he did. And here he is, uh, saying goodbye at 41. Very appropriate. Yeah, yeah, sad, yeah, sad we won't see him again, but happy for him and, and a celebration of, of how he decided to do it because it, 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 it just feels right, as I said earlier. And uh, it's been remarkable. Thank you. Thank you, David.